really to help you, and that's to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 17, Um, because it's going to be hard to follow if if you don't have it in your Bible right there, because there's a lot that's going on in this chapter. Second, um, I'm going to ask that you grab the nearest writing implement and find a blank spot somewhere on your bulletin or the back of your handout might be ideal if you grabbed one on the way in. And I'm going to give you some instructions. I'm going to borrow this from my mentor through the years, Mr. C.S. Lewis. I use the term mentor loosely because I can't process half of what he says without lots of reading and thinking at one time. But I'm going to steal this from him. If you've got, you got something to write with and you've got the back of your hand out, here's what I want you to do. I want you, it's going to be the easiest assignment you've ever got. You're like, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. It's going to be the easiest. Oh, yes, you have something on the back of your handout. Don't be scared. Uh, <laughs> um, you've got a blank spot right there. I want you to draw a crooked line. I leave the details up to you. Just draw a crooked line. I don't care how long. I don't care how short. I don't care how crooked. I don't care if it's squiggly. I don't care if it's jagged. Just draw a crooked line. Everybody, you got your crooked line? You don't have to show it to me. But you got your crooked line? You got it? Cool. Okay, I see, I see, I see some crooked lines. I'm excited. Here's my question. How did you know what a crooked line is? There you go. You know how to draw a crooked line because you define crooked by it's not a straight line. Now, that seems like a truism, right? Well, duh. Here's a straight line. So a crooked line is anything that the straight line is not, right? So the straight line is straight. I mean, that's, that's literally what that word means. It's, it's no deviations. It's no, it's no anything. It's just top to bottom. It doesn't move. It's just whoop. You're done. Straight line, you're over with. But a crooked line is all that that isn't. That it might swirl, it might zig, it might zag, it might, you know, do any number of things. It's just not a straight line. If you didn't know what a straight line was, you would have just called what you just drew a line. Because there's no reason to call it crooked if there's no such thing as straight. Have you ever looked at something and said, that's unfair? Maybe you see something happen in the world and you go, that's not right. That's unfair. It ought not be that way. It's unjust. And maybe there's something objective that you can point to and say, well, this is what makes it that way. Maybe you can see a law that's broken, that there's no punishment. Maybe you can see someone wronged you for which there is no recourse. Maybe you can see any number of things that you think should be a different way. And it's not even that you think they should be a different way. It's that you know the world ought not be this way. And yet it continues to persist like that, doesn't it? Any of you as kids ever look at your parents and say that's not fair and had them respond to you by saying life's not fair. And we it drives us nuts when somebody says life's not fair, right? Because the idea of fairness kind of lives in us, doesn't it? 
that we know that life isn't fair, but it ought to be. Right? Haven't you ever thought that? You look out at the world and you go, there ought to be justice. There ought to be rightness. And yet every day I look out at the world and I see things happening that ought not happen. I see justice not be done that ought to be done. I see things that aren't the way they ought to. To be, And I don't know why it ought to be that way, but all of us somehow agree that there is a world that ought to be. It's almost like God created us to live in a perfect world and now we're frustrated that it's not. Which is funny because that's exactly what the Bible says that happened. God created us to live in a perfect world, but now because of our sin, it's not. And our soul, our mind, our, our, our thoughts are all longing for that Eden that God made us for. That world in which there is perfect justice, there's fairness, there's rightness. But this fallen world, it seems like people can get away with anything. And bad stuff is going to happen and there's never going to be justice and nothing's ever going to be made right. Well, fortunately for us, we have God's word in front of us that tells us, The way the world ought to be will eventually be the way the world is. And injustice and unfairness and getting away with mistreating people and doing people wrong and rebellion against God, eventually it's going to go away. Eventually God's going to deal with it and there will be justice. So today we're going to look, I've waited all week long to say this, Today we're going to look at justice for the Lady, the Leviathan, and the Lollipop Guild. So if you will stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, um, we're going to read Revelation chapter 17, verses 7 through 18, and I promise eventually the Lollipop Guild reference will make sense. Revelation 17, starting in verse 7. I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible this morning. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I'll tell you the secret meaning of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and will be present again. Here's the mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. The beast that was and is not is himself an eighth king, yet he belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. He also said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw in the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until God's words are accomplished. And the woman you saw is the great city that has an empire over the kings of the earth. 
Father, I pray that you would make this clear and understandable to us this morning and help us to trust in your justice and the promise of its coming. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So if you're reading Revelation, you see the angel look at John and say, why are you marveled? Let me explain to you what you just saw. And you expect this really clear explanation and then you get through verse 18 and you're like, I'm more confused than I was when I started. Um, That is not a unique experience to you. I promise your pastor had that experience as well. Um, But there's a lot going on in these passages that upon study makes a lot of sense. Um, And this passage deals with the ultimate judgment of God on several parties that for thousands of years have been quote unquote getting away with it in human history. That there has been open rebellion against God for thousands of years and it has persisted. It happened over and over and over and over again to the point that those of us who long for the coming of Lord Jesus, who long for God to establish His kingdom on the earth, it can just become weary and make you say, how long are we going to have to put up with this? How long is this going to happen? Lord, how long is there going to be injustice on the earth? How long is there going to be these wicked folks just getting away with it? And the book of Revelation tells us not forever. So first, the first group I want us to look at is is godless humanity and that God guarantees their failure. So look at verses 7 and 8. So the angel asks John, he says, why in the world? He says, why do you marvel? Is I'm going to explain the, the mystery, the, the New King James says, of the woman and the beast that carries her. Mystery is a Greek word that if you, if you read mystery novels or you watch mystery movies or TV shows, you typically think of a mystery being something you don't know. That the episode or the movie or the book starts and it's something that you don't know at the beginning and you find out at the end. The reason it's called a mystery is the Greek word mysterion means something that you can't know it unless it's revealed to you. So John is basically saying that this this symbol is what this is. This is a sign. It's a symbol. This woman and this beast is something, John, that you're not going to understand unless I explain it to you. So let me explain it to you. He says, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. This is the New King James Version of it. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel. They'll be astonished. They'll gawk. Whose names are not written in the book of, the li- a book of life from the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So <clears throat> the two most numerous words in this passage are beast and its variants. That happens 11 times. And woman and its variants. That happens eight times. Almost every other character in this entire passage that we're studying this morning functions based on their interactions with the beast and the woman. So this all has to do, if there's injustice in the world, it's due to their interaction with either uh, Satan or false religion in some way, shape, or form. Satan is the poster child for rebellion against God. He's the first one that did it, and it's probably the best one that did it. So if you're, if, say again, he'd be the last one that does it too. Um, this is exactly what happens in this passage. Um, so in this first section, I want you to see that, that Christians are not going to fall for this when this happens. But 
rebellious, godless humanity will eventually have their reason clouded by God Himself and follow the beast to their own destruction. I want you to look at those. that you got this beast, and we're going to talk about that the angel says he was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. We're going to talk, to him and talk about him in detail a minute later. But look at those who are in danger in verses 7 and 8. The ones who are in danger are those who dwell on the earth whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. This is talking about salvation. Let me just put it bluntly. John is making it clear that if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have rejected it, you've heard the message that you are a sinner, that God loved you enough to want to save you in your sin, and so he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you and purchase your forgiveness with his own blood. And then he was buried and rose three days later and today is seated at the right, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. If you have heard that, you know the facts and you are consciously rejecting it and saying, I don't want that, that's not for me, I can't believe that, I won't believe that. John is saying you are in imminent danger of being deceived and deceived by Satan and deluded to the point not just that you won't believe, but that you bring yourself to a point where you can't believe. This is a warning. John said that those who dwell on the earth, or rather this is the angel talking to John, those who dwell on the earth whose names are not written in the book of, the, uh, book of life from the foundation of the world, they're going to marvel. They're going to be astonished when they see Satan's right-hand man operating in the context of Revelation. They're going to see him and they're going to go, wow, this is the guy we've been waiting for. This is the man. This is a leader we can truly get behind. And they're going to be fooled because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, the issue that people like to pick on in this verse is they said, those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that God chose a long, long, long time ago who was going to be saved? And, and that means we don't have a say in it? Are you saying that this all just comes down to, to God just fatalistically determining who's going to be saved and who is not? If you want to make an argument for that, this is not the passage for that. If you want to make an argument against that, this is not the passage for that. This is a passage that warns you You've got the gospel right in front of you. There is nobody today holding your feet to the fire saying, confess Jesus Christ or I'm going to throw you in. Nobody's doing that. If you are here today and you are rejecting the gospel, you're rejecting it because you want to. You're rejecting it because you're choosing you don't want to be saved. There is nobody here today who's telling you you can't be saved if you want to. In a few minutes, I'm going to give you an invitation and I'm going to say, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, if you want to know what it means to be saved, come down here, chat with me, say, Pastor, I need to know how to be saved. If that scares you, you got the guest card on the side of your bulletin. You can fill that out and put it in the offering plate when it comes by. If you're visiting, don't give us money. Just give us your contact information so I can make sure you're saved if you want to talk to me about that. That would be your gift to us. 
Or if that scares you, just catch me at the back door and say, Pastor, I'm scared of coming down the aisle. I didn't really want to leave my contact information in the plate because you might be a creeper. I don't know you. But I do want to talk to you at the back door and, 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 and let you know, hey, I need to talk to you about this, this being saved thing. You've got three different opportunities. You don't even have to wait for those. You can be saved right here in your seat. You can bow your head right now and pray and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me and I want you to forgive me. You can be saved before the sermon's even over. For, I, for all I know, you just got saved right now. I don't know. You can be. But if you're not saved, this very second, what's the reason for that? That you don't want to be. That's the reason. So don't key in on this passage and say, oh, written from the foundation of the world, God just decided who's going to be fooled. God just decided who's going to go to hell. This ain't got nothing to do with me. No, 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 no. That's a cop out. Stop it. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about warning you that if you don't give your life to Christ, man, Satan's got free reign to fool you. And you are presenting yourself as a target. This passage is about the consequences of rejecting the gift of God given to you in Jesus Christ. And the warning is that if you reject the gift of God in Jesus Christ, when Satan puts a fake Messiah out in front of you, when Satan puts a fake Messiah out there, and listen, you say, oh, well, I, I just got to hope that I'm not in the end times so I can keep my wits about me. Listen, Satan is real good at putting fake Messiahs in front of you. Satan can put, put, can put a fake Messiah in front of you that looks like a man, that looks like a woman, that looks like a job, that looks like a bank account, that looks like a doctor, that looks like any number of things. That if I could just have that, I would be saved. I would be fixed. Life would be great. And Satan goes, yeah, put your trust in that. Put your faith in that. That job will make everything better. That money will make everything better. That court verdict will get everything right. It's 2020. Oh, if we can just elect the right person, everything will be great. There are a lot of people that put their faith in a Messiah with, a, with either an R or a D behind their name. Stresses them out. False messiahs. Y'all listen, I'm not, I'm not saying one candidate's a false messiah and the other one's the real one. I'm saying neither of them are messiahs. And if you put your faith in either of them to be your salvation, you don't miss the boat. said it last week, and one of the greatest stickers I ever saw, and you can get them in both varieties, one of them is a, it's a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is not a Democrat, dot, 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 or a Republican. And you can get it the other way around, too. Jesus doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. False messiahs. And if you don't know the real one, Scripture warns you, you can fall for the fake ones. If you don't know the real ones, you can fall for the fake ones. And the consequences of rejecting Jesus over time lead to a clouding of reason. Here's the scariest part of this. Satan might put the false Messiah out there to deceive you. And God will take his hand off of your reason and let you be deluded by it.
That's the scary part of the wrath of God. That's the way God judges rebellious humanities. He lets them have what they want. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. through Paul says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Does it say that God lied to them? No. But it does say that Satan gave them a lie and God gave them the truth and they didn't want the truth so that God stepped back and said, all right, you don't want what I'm offering? You can have what he's offering. Does that seem scary? You don't have to be at risk of that. Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 25 says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Y'all, when I'm pro- I promise you, when you start to say, no... That whole God thing, that whole Jesus thing, that whole Bible thing, that whole Christianity thing is a little bit crazy for me. I think I need something a little bit more rational and believable. That's when you start doing irrational, unbelievable things. That's when you start making dumb decisions. Yes, I said dumb. I mean just flat out dumb. I was nervous about saying this, but it's probably the best illustration, so I'm going to do it. For those of you who are professing Christians in here, have you ever been picked on because apparently we're science deniers? It's like we're, we're the people that get picked on because we believe quote-unquote silly things like, like the flood in Genesis. We believe silly things like creation of the world in seven days. We believe silly things like a man rose from the dead despite the fact there's more evidence for the existence of Jesus than there is than Julius Caesar and there's more, uh, there's more circumstantial evidence and circumstantial is not a bad word. Circumstantial and objective evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is for many other historic events. You know, we believe silly things like the resurrection. You know, we catch a lot of flack for that. We're science deniers. But if you turn around and ask the person who calls you a science denier what the difference between a man and a woman is in 2020, they can't tell you. They can't figure it out. And we're the science deniers? We're irrational? I don't know about y'all, but my Bible tells me the difference between a man and a woman. It seems pretty basic. But when you unmoor yourself from objective truth, you open yourself up. Anybody can argue anything and make it sound good. 
Satan's been doing that for thousands of years. When you deny God and you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, you trade wisdom for foolishness. You become easily deceived. And Satan can have open season on you. And if you decide you don't want God's help, he will let you go it alone and you will get fooled. So God guarantees the failure of godless humanity. You will not come out of rebellion against God alive. And second, God guarantees the defeat of a rebellious Satan. Look at verse 9. This angel says, here's the mind with wisdom. Lord, have mercy. We need it. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Or the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now this is crazy. Remember, this is a, this is a symbol. This is not literal. The woman we're talking about is a symbol of worldwide false religion. We talked about that last week. I can get you the recording if you like it. it it's, it, she's a symbol of worldwide false religion. Says she, the, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Interestingly enough, you know what Rome used to be known as? City on seven hills. Because if you go to Rome today, they can point out the seven hills on which the city is set up around. Almost like the seat of world culture and world religion, which it was in the ancient world. That at the time, I tend to interpret this, and I don't believe I'm the only one, at the time John wrote this, the center of worldwide false religion was Rome itself. False religion was literally setting on the city, sitting on the city of seven hills, which would have been Rome. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. That there, there's another symbol at play here, that she's not just seated on the city of Rome. This seems to be a false religion that spans time. That there had, by the time John written this, there had been five kingdoms that came that were kind of the seat of worldwide false religion. One currently is, which would have been Rome, and the other has not yet come. There's another king coming that will centralize this false demonic religious power in government. He hadn't come yet at the time John was writing Revelation. And the angel says when he comes, excuse me, he must continue a short time. And then verse 11 is the most complex one and tells us how this beast is going to make the godless deceived masses believe in him. Christians, why do we believe in Jesus? If you could pick a single event that is convincing to you that Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah, the Son of the living God, what is the one event that transpired in history that convinces you of that? Exactly. The resurrection. And if you've got any questions and you go, there's a part of Christianity I just don't understand. I struggle with it. Um, that, that Maybe you've got some, if you've ever read your Bible and you say, my Bible tells me this is right, but my heart's not there yet. I can sense a little bit of human fleshly rebellion. Uh, I, what is it that convinces you? Well, the guy who rose from the dead said it. And if Jesus rose from the dead... Okay, Son of God, I kind of have to submit to that. I kind of need to bow the knee. This convinces me. I need to listen to him. He's telling the truth. The resurrection is kind of the, 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 the settle everything card, right? That if Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said is the most important thing in the world. 
So Satan sees that that's pretty powerful. And as far as Antichrist is concerned, he fakes his own. Now we, we covered this way back in Revelation, it's I believe 13, that the Antichrist, Satan's right hand man, yes it's 13, he, he fakes a resurrection. Now, I didn't put this on your handout, but Revelation 13 says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. Same thing. Same beast we're talking about. Uh, verse 3 says, One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. That, that word appeared to be fatally wounded, that doesn't mean that it looked like it was a fatal wound, but it was. That means it was actually a fatal wound and everybody saw that it was a fatal wound. That's what it means that it appeared to be that way. Well, this angel tells us that this seventh head that was wounded, appeared, appeared fatally, is in fact this seventh king. So he gets killed, but then somehow returns. How does the seventh become the eighth? Fake resurrection. I know that seems complex. I could literally preach 12 sermons just on that. But I'm going to try and do some basic math here so that you can see how this works and how hideous this Antichrist actually is. This angel says the beast that was, he died, is not, is still dead, is himself the eighth. So you have the seventh king, this seventh world leader throughout history, he pops up. Somehow or another he gets killed, he gets fatally wounded, and he dies. And then appears to be resurrected. Now who controls the power of life and death? God does. So is God going to help Satan out by resurrecting his false Messiah? No, he's not. So how does a resurrection occur when God doesn't allow it to happen? It's not really him. That world leader died. He's dead at the point he's killed. But when he comes back, it's not the seventh. It's the eighth. It's a false resurrection via demonic possession. The seventh was, is not, but is now the eighth. Functioning as one of the seven. Satan himself. Satan himself impersonates this seventh world leader and begins ruling the world himself. He's now in charge at this point. Now, this is complicated. Josh, why are you doing this? It's a weird doctrinal message. Antichrist is not on planet earth right now. Why does this even matter? Well, because the angel tells us that Satan has tried this several times. He's had five puppet rulers throughout history. There was one at the time of John, and he's going to try it again. Tell me, where are those previous five kings? Where are those previous six kings? Where are they today? They're dead. Every single one of them's dead. And then the seventh one's going to die too. And then Satan himself is going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 through 20. 
And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That God throws Satan alive into the lake of fire. He doesn't win. This is a long, complicated way of Jesus telling you through this book, Satan doesn't win. He tries over and over and over and over and over again. Satan, who was responsible for the murder of the entire human race, starting in Genesis 3. Satan, who has persecuted God's people since time immemorial, who was the force behind Pharaoh, who locked him in Egypt, who was the force behind Babylon, who was the force behind Assyria, who was the force behind Persia, who was the force behind Rome, who was the force behind every international world power who has hated assaulted and maligned Christians since the history of the world who has constantly been against God's people. You would think he would... Somebody asked in Sunday school this morning. We're studying Exodus in Sunday school. Go back and read Exodus. Y'all, Pharaoh is stupid. He's dumb. Because Moses says, hey, let my people go. Why? Well, because Yahweh said to. I don't know who that is. I don't worship him. I never heard of him. All I know is these are my slaves and you need to go. God says, all right, hey, Moses, stretch out the staff in your hand. Nile turns the blood. All the fish in the Nile die. Agriculture is completely disrupted. Hey, Pharaoh, your river's blood now. You change your mind? Nah. Plague after plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. Finally culminating in the death of the firstborn. All the firstborn in Egypt who don't have blood on the door from Passover die. Every single one of them. And then Pharaoh finally says, okay, get out. And then about the time they get to the Red Sea, what does Pharaoh do again? He decides he wants to go and get them back. You would think that eventually he would have taken enough lumps that he's figured out he can't beat God. But he's stupid. He keeps trying to do it. Y'all, it's because Pharaoh had Satan behind him. And that is Satan's MO. That's what he does. He thinks if he just tries one more time, it'll be the time. If I can just try one more time, this will be the time that I get him. He's never won once. And Scripture's telling you he's going to keep trying until God finally says I've had enough. That God guarantees Satan's not going to win. He can't. It's impossible. Say, well, that's great. We talked about six kings and then there's this seventh king somewhere in the future. But what about now? Why does this matter now? 1 John 4, 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming. And a lot of us stop that right there. And we think of Antichrist as some dark, shrouded figure that will appear at some point in the history. But that's not what John says. He says, and is now already in the world. 
This attitude, this spirit of constant hatred of God and his people is already in the world. And is it frustrating to you? It frustrates me. I read more articles this week of places in the world where Christians have been slaughtered just because they're Christians. I'm probably mistaking this. I think it was in, I think it was in, no, it was in Burkina Faso. It was in Burkina Faso. A seminary student was murdered just because he was a seminary student. Just because he was a Christian. I think this year alone, Boko Haram has killed 300 Christians. It's February 16th. What does the media think of us? What does Hollywood think of us? I laughed about it last year kind of darkly because one of the more famous Christian works of fiction in history, A Wrinkle in Time, got made into a movie. Did y'all see this? Not the movie, but did y'all see that it did? It flopped, so you probably didn't see it. It's one of the more famous Christian fictional books ever. Had an all-star cast. I mean, they had Oprah in it. I mean, I'm sorry, y'all. Oprah, getting Oprah in a movie ain't cheap. Poured millions into this thing. But they stripped every vestige of Christianity from the script because they wanted it to be more palatable for a wider audience. When you do that, it removed the soul of the movie, but we just, that's not what people want. They don't want this Christianity business. They don't want Jesus. That's, that's a little too much. Don't ever forget that Satan hates us. He has a vested interest in making sure as many people as possible hate us. Jesus promised that the world would hate us. But you know what else he promises? Eventually justice will be done. Eventually justice will be done. And it's not on us to bring it about. Eventually Jesus is going to do it. So God guarantees the destruction, the defeat of a rebellious Satan. And then finally, the lollipop guild. I've been looking forward to these guys. Starting in verse 12. The angel says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They have one mind and will give their power and authority to the beast. And these will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he's lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Have you all ever watched the original Wizard of Oz? One with Judy Garland? And she blows, she blows away in the house. And the house drops on the wicked witch and she steps out and she's in this crazy world where nothing makes sense. And next thing you know, people start coming out and they're excited because she's killed the witch. Wow, you must be very powerful. You killed, you're from, where are you from? I'm from Kansas. She's from the mythical land of Kansas. And they all start hailing her as the savior and everybody from Oz starts coming out 
to greet her, and then you get the best characters in the movie. The Munchkins. They're my favorite. <laughs> because you can imitate their voices and sing their little song, and it's the, it's the most memorable thing in the movie other than the lion who just can't anything. But the munchkins come out, and they're very important, and they're wearing their little suits, and they have their dance, and they're apparently very important. They say, we represent the lollipop girl, the lollipop girl, the lollipop Y'all didn't know I was going to do that dance today, did you? <laughs> and they come out, and they're apparently the official ASEAN welcome party. They've got their little uniforms, and they present her with this very official medal for killing the witch, and they're very important. Except you didn't see them before. They were hiding. Right? And you don't ever see them again. Once they're gone. Have you ever noticed that? They're out here dressed up, giving medals, singing songs, dancing, choreographing. They're the welcome party. They're big and official and they're important, but they weren't there before. They show up for their five minutes of fame and then they disappear again. That's exactly what these ten kings are. They're the lollipop guild. It says they have received no kingdom as yet. Go back and look at world history. Most guys who built kingdoms and empires, how did they get it? They fought for it. They conquered it. That's why Alexander the Great gets called Alexander the Great. Because he got bored. At, there's a famous story about Alexander the Great where he actually went into a mild depression because there was no more of the world left to conquer. That's how he built his empire. He conquered it. Babylon built an empire by conquering. Persia built an empire by conquering. Assyria built an empire by conquering. Every major world power in history has conquered. But these guys have received no kingdom. Why won't anybody give me a kingdom? When's it my turn? But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Satan goes, all right, sure. The Lollipop Guild is now in power. These ten kings hadn't earned anything, hadn't done anything, hadn't conquered anything. They show up as puppet kings with Satan, and they're of one mind, which is to say no mind. And they give their power and authority to the beast. He's the goose that laid the golden egg. You've got these ten puppet leaders who are nobodies who are willing to do whatever this satanic leader tells them to do because he's the source of their power. So much so that they're dumb enough to set armies up to go to war with Jesus himself because Satan tells them to do it. Have you ever known anybody who has no personal principles of their own, but they will just go along with whoever will help them get ahead? You ever met anybody like that? They're not trustworthy. They're just power hungry. That's these guys. 
They want power and they don't want to share it with anybody. They only do what the beast says because he's the goose that laid the golden egg. And they will do whatever their gravy train tells them to do. Do you know Psalms tells us about people like that? Psalm chapter 4 says, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You've put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let me give you a caution from the pages of the book of Revelation that God gives a very strong warning against hitching your wagon to somebody you think is going to give you influence, give you power, Give you your kingdom. Whatever your kingdom might look like. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a reputation. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever your goose that laid the golden egg is. Don't forget. Don't don't ever forget these guys. Don't ever forget the lollipop guild. That they hadn't received a kingdom until Satan gave them one. You don't know their names now. And you won't know their names then. They're nameless. They're personalityless. They get a kingdom for one hour. Short, brief amount of time. Do you know that not every quote unquote good thing you get in this world is necessarily from God? You know, you can have the wealth of this world and it be more of a curse on you than a blessing. The psalmist says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God's the reason that we can lie down in peace and sleep. That there are plenty of people out there who say, oh, well, this is going to benefit me, so I'm going to go along with that. This is going to enrich me, so I'm going to go along with that. They're going to give me a kingdom, so I'm going to go with them. But no, we lift our countenance to the Lord because when God blesses you, when God fights for you, man, listen, I don't care about owning a kingdom because every kingdom on this world is going to pass away. Every kingdom in this world is going to pass away. House, job, legacy. You know whose kingdom is not going to pass away? Jesus's. I don't want to be a king. I just want to be a citizen. I want to have a place. And Jesus has offered me that. Don't go chasing kingdoms. Don't go end up being the lollipop guild. Get your kingdom for one hour and nobody remembers your name five minutes later. And then finally John says, He said to me, the waters which you saw... Where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God's put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kingdom of the earth. Remember, this is a symbolic passage. This is not a real woman. This woman is symbolic of a worldwide false religion, but not necessarily a new one. You can go back to Genesis 11 and see the original Babylon. That's where this false religion came from. 
And then the lollipop guild, who gets their power from this beast, from Satan, decides that they don't like a competing power structure. We don't like that there is a false religion out here competing. So they turn on her. And they absolutely destroy her. By the time they're done, there's nothing left. And remember, this is a symbol. There is no cannibalism going on here. No people are being eaten. The picture is just of violent destruction, even of false religion. Eventually, people who want a kingdom of their own don't even want to share it with false gods. They just want it all to themselves. False religion eventually gets destroyed. It eventually goes down. It eventually is absolutely demolished. Say, well, I I don't know that I worship a false religion. I don't know that I have anything to worry about here. This is one of those things that goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on on to the point where you might think it's okay. That God's not going to do anything about it. Let me tell you what false religion looks like. False religion... Sure, it might look like Islam. It might look like Hinduism. It might look like Buddhism. It might look like Mormonism. It might look like being a Jehovah's Witness. It might look like any number of things. But you know what else it might look like? It might look like claiming Christianity without living it. It might look like having 18 Bibles but never opening any of them. It might look like maintaining membership at a church for emotional reasons, but never darkening the door. It might mean that you claim to know and love and devote your life to Jesus, but you won't even obey the first command He ever gave you and sit there and refuse to be baptized. It might be that. It might be reading the passage that says... You, you're going to talk about my commands with your children around the dinner, or with your children around the dinner table. You'll instruct them. You'll talk about them when you go out and when you come in. It might be that you, or you're going to you're going to teach your children every year that this is what God did for us. You know, I'm going back to Deuteronomy where God talks to them about the Passover and says this is going to happen every year. You're going to constantly remind your children about how you're going to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You read that passage, but then you decide that sports and clubs are more important than teaching your children to be at church. Y'all, false religion is seductive and it makes a play for every single one of us. There are ways for us to claim the name of Christian and not live like it. I claim to be a Christian and and I, y'all can't get mad at me right now because I don't have social media. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Snapchat. I don't have any of that mess. So if, if, if I'm stomping on your toes, it's purely blindly because I'm stomping around. It's not because I've snooped on your Facebooks and no. Okay? I don't know. Have a look. Maybe I claim to be a Christian, but I badmouth other people on Facebook who disagree with me. Or I block people that I disagree with so I can talk about them behind their back and folks not know that I said it. Because that's what Jesus would do. 
False religion. False religion is wanting to have the name and the comfort of religion, but really what I want is my own kingdom. Really what I want is my own little world where I can rule it for my one hour. Because if I behave like a citizen, that means I've got to obey a king. But if I'm a king, I can do what I want. This is how God feels about false religions. Exodus 12, 12 through 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If you're covered by the blood, you're not going to get destroyed. Do you know, I asked this question in Sunday school this morning, and I didn't even think about it until I was studying it. Do you know that God never promised He wouldn't destroy Israelites during the tenth plague? He never promised. He said, this plague's going to be on the Egyptians. It's not going to be on you. He said, when I see the blood on the door. If there's, a, if there's blood on an Egyptian door because they have seen that the God of Israel is truly God, there were Egyptians who went out of Egypt with the Israelites. Go and read the names. Read the records. There were Egyptians who converted. They went out with them. If there was blood on an Egyptian door, the firstborn in that house didn't die. If there was an Israelite house that didn't put blood on the door, the firstborn died. Kind of like a church membership role, huh? You can be on the church membership role, but if there ain't blood on the door when it's time for judgment, that role's not going to help you. Just what you're called by, what nation you're from, what language you speak, it's all about whether or not there's blood. There's no blood, fake religion. And then finally, the way God looks at other gods, Judges 10, 11 through 14, the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the people of Ammon and the Philistines, also the Sidonians and Amalekites and Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go, cry out to the gods which you've chosen, and let them deliver you in your time of distress. If you put your faith in a false God, whether it's your job, your reputation, your marriage, your kids, your bank account, your health insurance, your doctor, your lawyer, fake Christianity, eventually God will say, you put your faith in those gods, let them come to your aid. Now, it's a scary prospect, I know. I'm not trying to scare you, though. I'm trying to warn you. Because the reason that God gives you this is to tell you it doesn't have to be that way. I'm not an angry preacher. I'm really not. I tend to think of myself as a pretty fun, loving, carefree guy. 
I enjoy ice cream. I have cats. You know? I even have a Nintendo hooked up to my TV. I'm not an angry, mean person. Okay? I enjoy cupcakes. You know, I try and manage my sugar intake. I'm, I'm a normal, happy person. I don't enjoy being angry, and, and I don't want to sound angry, but I do want to warn you, God says there are consequences for continuing in rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. Because the danger is you think because things continue this way for forever that nothing's going to ever come of it. But scripture says one day there will be justice. Because right now it might seem it might not seem like life is fair, but fairness is coming. Justice is coming. And y'all, let me tell you, if justice gets here, if fairness gets here, and you don't know Jesus, fair is the last thing you want. You don't want fair. You want grace. You want mercy. And you can have it. You don't have to be in rebellion. You can come to Jesus. You don't have to be defeated. You can have Jesus. You don't have to be destroyed. You can have Jesus. Do you want You can have grace today. If you want to give your life to Christ, if you want 100% guaranteed forgiveness of sins with no reason to ever fear the fires of hell again, you can have it today. And I would love to be the one to introduce you to Jesus. So Mark and Miss Joyce, you're about to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. <clears throat> Come talk to me and say, Pastor, I need to know Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I just don't know how. I'll be glad to help you with that. Come talk to me. If it scares you to come down to the side, fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin. Drop it off and plate when it comes by. I would love to follow up with you. Uh, if you miss that and you're getting ready to leave and you go, I really feel like I need to talk to that guy. He's crazy, but I, I feel like he can help me. Catch me at the back door. I will drop everything I'm doing and I will come and talk to you then. Because I love you. This church loves you and we want nothing more than for you to know Jesus, okay? So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing a hymn, and if you need to come, you come. All right? Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time of invitation. And Lord, you have, you, you've shown us in this passage today that even though we think there's never going to come a day where justice is going to be done, there is going to come a day where you judge people who have rejected you. There is going to come a day where you finally judge Satan. There is going to come a day when you punish Greedy rulers who want to rule their own kingdom even if it's for an hour. There is going to come a day where you judge false religions of every variety. That one day the world that should be will become the world that is. And we're not prepared for that outside the blood of Jesus Christ. We will be the judged, not the saved, if not for Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would prepare us here at Stapleton to be a people who look forward to that. And say, even so, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to seeing the one who bled for us. If there's a man on the boy or girl in this room who has never given their life to Christ, I pray that you would work on them in the person of your Holy Spirit. You would draw them to you for forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And you would glorify yourself um, and save them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn is number 325, Wider Than Snow. Would you stand with me as we sing?